Hi there, my name's Sue Nelson and this is the Food Talk Show. And as you know, last week we had our um, Food and Drink Expo special from NEC in Birmingham. Uh, one program's just not good enough. We've got uh, another one for you today because we met so many incredible people. Um, so today we're going to pay, play um, some interviews that we did there live. Um, lots of different producers ranging from people who made mead to tea to oh black garlic that was really good um to tasting some fish um and uh again met some lovely lovely producers see what you think so i'm at the um nec um and i'm just surrounded by food and drink um uh, everywhere and i've managed to stop at the i've got to say this right otherwise i'll get myself in trouble the pished fish stand and james eagle is the managing director. We're going to talk to James in a minute. Um, he's giving away a taste of his, would you believe, gin and tonic salmon. Gin and tonic salmon. Um, and essentially, I think what you do is infuse your salmon in different sorts of flavours. Can I just try this a minute, please, James? Um, so gin and tonic. Mm. Salmon. Oh, my God, that's weird. Um Victoria, um, you've just you've just wandered over as a business owner. Yes. Can you tell me about your business and what you look for when you come to these shows? Because you can't offer the same as a supermarket because somebody can go around down the road and do that. I presume you're you come to these things to look for things that are slightly different. Yes. Well, we've actually just about to take over a delicatessen, so we've come here in the view to see what else is about there and see what we can actually take in to a small town to offer something a little bit more different than just going to a, a local supermarket and picking up anything, that we want to offer some decent quality food. I thought, also think with foodies, they, they like to try things that are a little bit different and, and they, you know, they like to do that. So if you've got some of James's gin and tonic salmon, it's, it's a bit more of a retail experience, isn't it? And I don't think people just want to go and do a quick shop. If you've got a deli, they want to they want to have a really browse. They want to talk to you about products. Yeah, very much so. And it's it's even things like because um, I've got three small children. As a busy mum, I need to find something that is quick and easy to prepare. But it doesn't have to be something that of a freezer that's ready made. Um, so, for example, my daughter in particular loves smoked salmon. Um, I've had it a long time ago and didn't particularly like it, but I love that smoked salmon. It's actually so different than than the supermarket quality. Is is, is there's no comparison? Well, um, thank you, uh, Victoria. What's the name of your new deli? It will be the Wenlock uh, Deli Company Limited. And whereabouts are you situated? Uh, in Shropshire. Shropshire. Better go and visit that, everybody, when uh, when that's open. Thank you, um, thank you, Victoria. So, so James, we've got a whole side of salmon there. Um, you've got a little sprinkling of, is that, is that lemon zest and orange zest? It's actually grapefruit and lime. And, and we use the grapefruit to give it a kind of tonicky tang. Um, if you start putting tonic water with salmon, it doesn't work so well. So we use, we're kind of trying to be a bit creative. It is still smoked salmon, but we're trying to put some other flavours in there to complement the, the, the fish um, and just create something a bit more playful, a bit more fun than just standard oak smoked salmon. 
And, and you've called this gin and tonic salmon. So presumably you've infused gin on this, which, which, which is, um, you know, alcohol actually does help um, the, the fish a little bit. And then you've got the zest in order to give you that sort of tonicy. Yes, so we, we put gin and juniper as part of the cure. Um, and then we, um, we cure that for well, between two and three days. Um, we draw out as much moisture as we can from the fish. So we're, we're not concerned so much with yield with what we do. Um, you know, it, is, it is a premium product. We would rather it be um, the, the taste that lures you in rather than the price. And um, you've got another one here, which has got sort of orangey stuff. It seems like it's sprinkled over it. What, what one is this one? So this is our old-fashioned cocktail. It's actually one of the first ones we ever did. Um, so it's cured with whiskey, orange zest, smoked over oak, and then glazed with maple syrup when it comes out of the smoker. My Oh, my God. I'm going to have to try that. My, my wife is Canadian, and uh, everything we do has to feature some kind of maple syrup somewhere in it. So, uh, yeah, that's where the maple, maple syrup comes into it. I'm going to have a little taste of that. So I've got a whole, a whole side of uh, fillet salmon here. And, and uh, ooh, that's very different from the gin and tonic salmon. Um, slightly sweet edge. Not getting the whiskey yet. Is that, is that the right thing? So the, the whiskey, part of the curing process, so we add the whiskey in there. Um, very, very early on, my mum said to me, the last thing she wants with her scrambled eggs is a glug of whiskey. So whilst we could douse more whiskey on there, we've tried to keep it um, subtle. I didn't want it to be too gimmicky. Um, and also, but at the same time, it still needs to be smoked salmon. I want you can taste that, actually. I've, I've now just got an edge of it, and that's probably all you need. You're, you'll find that as, as it sort of melts away in the mouth, and of course, when we do tastings at farmer's markets and stuff, people wolf it down, and I have to sort of say, no, no, just leave it in the mouth just a little bit longer to dissolve, and because well, the whiskey will have penetrated further into the fish through our curing process, um, that's where you get the flavours sort of coming through from orange now as well <laughs> um, so how do you how do you sell it so if, I'm, if I've got a farm shop or a deli do I just buy a side of this or do you actually you know slice it very very thinly we, we hand slice everything so there's there's no machinery in our smokehouse we're a, we're a humble little outfit um, so we hand slice everything we package for, for retail um, we package in 100 gram 200 gram packs um, and we keep our packaging very simple. So we have a, a header card which goes over the top of the, of the packaging. It's not heavily packaged. You'll find a lot of smoked salmon comes in a big cardboard envelope, which we're trying to steer away from. Um, but then we also do, um, we do sides for restaurants. Again, we, we slice this and it, we take the skin off as well. So actually, for a busy little cafe or something, there's no work to do. We do all the, all the sort of preparation. So it's literally just presenting it on the plate when it arrives at the cafe. What I like with these big um, sides of salmon that you've got is is that you, you're almost um, slicing it into very thick slices, you know, like half a centimetre slices. For me, that tastes that tastes amazing. I don't like it when it's so thin; you can almost see through it. And and, and quite often with the supermarkets, it's 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 quite a false taste. It feels like the smoke's been injected or something, and, and quite a lot of salt. Um, whereas this feels more like you know when you have Japanese sushi and, and, and you've got a beautiful layer of salmon. Yeah, no, that's exactly what we're, we're trying to do. Actually, we um, when I had a when I had a proper job and I uh, I worked in Scandinavia, um, I, I found a lot of the salmon was actually thick sliced, um, and it wasn't something which I'd ever seen back in the UK. So when I came back, I did a bit more research and I started presenting it like this and lo and behold the customers are saying oh wow this is it's a totally different way of having smoked salmon and I always say when you buy a smoked salmon and cream cheese bagel you got that thin layer of smoked salmon in there why bother there's you, all you taste is cream cheese so uh, you know whereas with this actually it's a bit more it's a bit meatier it's a bit more um a bit more to enjoy from the smoked salmon side of it rather than just uh, yeah other flavors going on 
So it is a bit like, you know, sashimi in a way. And, and if you are going to have it like that, it's got to be really great quality because you can tell, can't you? It's, it's thick slices and as you say, it's quite meaty. Where do you source your uh, salmon from? So 95% of the time we get our salmon from a place called Loch Duet in the far northwest of Scotland. Uh, we've been working with them pretty much since we started. Um, I have, of course, tried salmon from everywhere, from Norway, from other places in Scotland. I come back to this every time because it is head and shoulders above the best, both for smoking and for, for cooking as well. Um, so we've got a great working relationship with them um, and uh, I think they, they really like what we do and, and we love their salmon. So yeah, that's why we stick with them. Well, that's a really good call out, isn't it, for Lock Jewett, just to say that, that you know, in, in, uh, in James's opinion, it is the absolute best salmon in the world. Checks in the post, I hope, Lock Jewett. <laughs> That's really good. So where can people come and get this? You're not selling to consumers. Are you just selling direct to the, to the sector? We, we, we sell online. So we have a big, big online presence and we do, um, I'd say, probably 50% of what we do is, um, is mail order. Um, we supply selfridges um, and we, we are, obviously, we're at the top end of the market. So we've lots of fancy delis and beautiful retailers across the land. And um, like I said, we're, we're only small and we're sort of growing slowly but surely. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyone who's interested in having us on their shelves, then yeah, please do get in touch. So that's great. I personally would recommend the gin and tonic salmon. It sounds a bit bizarre, but you get a really nice um, infusion of gin, and, and the tonic is actually this lovely sort of grapefruit zest on the outside. So what you need to do is, if you wanna if you wanna check out um, James, it's the Pished Fish. <laughs> I actually got that right, and it's the Pished fish.com and we'll have that on our website food talk uh, website so um thanks very much for joining us james thank you sue thanks i've just bumped into my um, my good friend here peter winkler who's a marketing guy for um, berry black pudding you know that i love your product don't you, you do, I. that's why we came and found you yesterday <laughs> came and found me with a big uh, with a big slice of black pudding so anybody that hasn't been to bury as they call it, Brie. Um, Berry actually is the home of black pudding. That's what you like to claim, isn't it? That's right. Um, some people say Scotland, some people say Ireland, but the fact is, Berry is where it all began and where we make the best. And for anybody who hasn't been to Berry Market, uh, you can get some great black pudding there, can't you? You can. For anyone who's not been to Berry Market, where have you been? What markets have you been going to? You can come. This is where we started. Debbie RMD, uh, she started on the market stall there when she was 12 years old. And that's where the company developed from. She bought the stall. She um, brought in Richard, who's our production director, whose father, in fact, he's a third generation black pudding maker uh, from the Morris's family. And they got together and they, they now supply 5,000 supermarkets, wholesalers, independent butchers and retailers all over the country, all over the world. And Berry Black Pudding's um, really well known. So you are the Berry Black Pudding Company. That's a pretty good, uh, smart move, isn't it, to make sure that you, you completely corner the market with everybody knowing about you. Can you just tell, um, for those listeners who, who don't know what black pudding's made out of, can you just explain exactly what, you know, what it, it, in, in the UK, anyway, it normally contains? Black pudding is traditionally a use-up product. Um, you'd have meat manufacturers and butchers who would use the trimmings and the, all their excess fats and, and bits and pieces, mix it with some blood and they'd make a product rather than disposing of that. It, it would be um, to prevent the waste. Because we're not a meat manufacturer, we are specialists in black pudding, we have to buy everything that we put in the black pudding in especially for it. So, um, so you see up on the wall here, 
there's four ingredients that go into our black pudding. We've got a blood mix, and we do use a dried blood purely because it's a very consistent product. We wouldn't be able to get the volume in the UK of fresh blood, and you would have to fill it with so many anticoagulants to be able to bring that into the factory. We're making about 80 tonnes a week, so we'd have to have a, a line of pigs between Berry and Bolton all queued up with very worried looks on the face. And, and just for anybody who doesn't know, so, so um, pig blood, most, most people who um, have a cutting plant or, or you know, um, you know, killing um, animals, that will all go to waste down the drain generally because it's quite difficult to keep. But because it's blood, it will actually se- separate and coagulate, which, which is what you're talking about, isn't it, Peter? So if you can get it dried, especially when you're doing the volumes that you're doing, it, it really does um, give the consistency that you need at this sort of level. It is. Depending on how the animal has been, whether it's been well or not, whether it's been um, pregnant, what it's been eating either in the winter or dried food in grass in the summer, um, the consistency of the blood can change. Like I say, we'd have to put so much anticoagulant in to keep that blood fresh and from clotting. You think if you cut yourself, um, blood clots very quickly and it's the same, same with the blood that we use. The dried is a very consistent product, gives us a consistent product in the black pudding every time we make it and it's heat treated, it's very, very safe. I mean, I've got some here, um, which is mixed with our spice blend, and, and I can eat that straight from the tub. That's how safe it is. And, and um, um, some people um, might say that eating uh, pig's blood is, is, a, is a pretty sort of um, barbaric thing to do. But I, I mean, I think that people don't realise that actually this is, this is a waste product. And, and actually, in keeping with lots of things that are happening at the moment, it's, it's um, preventing that stuff from literally going down the drain and, and finding a use for it. Yeah, I think people nowadays, they're very, very keen to know where the food comes from. Um, we're all talking about reducing food waste. Well, this was a traditional use-up product for all that waste that would have been made. Um, people get squeamish when we talk about blood, but if you weren't full of it, you'd drop down dead. Yeah, and obviously if you have a fillet steak and all that, or any type of meat, um, obviously there's blood in there. So we've got dried blood, um, and, and you've got a spice mix, um, um, a sort of herb spice mix. There's, there's one particular uh, um, traditional uh, herb that goes into uh, black pudding. I, I'm going to test my knowledge here. That's Penny Royal, isn't it? That's right, and that's as much as I'm giving you. Uh, I thought I was getting the secrets here. But traditionally, um, Penny Royal is, is, is a particular herb that goes into black pudding. Um, um, but you've got uh, all other spices that go with it too. Yeah, it's a whole spice blend. Obviously, when you taste it, you'll taste the pepper in there. Um, you taste the marjoram. But aside from that, there's four people within the company and the family know the recipe. I'm not one of them. Uh-huh. So you're not in the, in the, in the little circle. Um, m- me personally, I think black pudding is about having that peppery edge. Um, and I do think it, it needs that. And actually, some of the supermarket stuff that I buy occasionally, which isn't yours, which I don't know why I do that, um, doesn't quite have that edge of pepper. And for me, that isn't what black pudding's about. Yeah, I think it depends who you speak to. Um, ours, is, ours is quite a middle of the road black pudding when it comes to pepper if you speak to people who are used to eating a a Scottish black pudding which is very highly peppered they'll taste ours and say it tastes bland if you speak to someone who's used to a milder one they'll taste ours and go too much pepper so you you can never really win but because we're such a mainstream product we try to say middle of the road appeals to the mass market so we've got some herbs and spices we've got some um, um, pig's blood what else is is traditionally in a black pudding you've got three other ingredients um, not counting the water which is in there it's a large quantity of that uh, we have fresh onions we don't use anything dried um, so you get the, the full benefits and the flavor from them we use barley and it's a whole whole gra- barley grain which we soak and put into the pudding and we use a back fat now 
the important thing is when people look at our pudding they see chunks of fat and they go oh, how, can, how can it be healthy for you we, we were called a superfood as you know back in 2016 for the high iron so surely the, the pudding's full of fat it can't possibly be good for me our traditional puddings are seven percent fat that the mainstream one you buy in the supermarket would be two and a half percent but the fat that you see is the fat that's in it that they yeah, so you, you'll get a lot of fat in meat that you don't actually notice is what you're saying and just because you can actually identify the fat then people would say oh my god there's a lot of fat in there but as you say there's only you know seven percent or whatever it is um and also for me I, I i can't eat you know fatty meat i just can't i've never been able to even since i was a child but i can eat this because it's part of the flavor and also for me it doesn't have that horrible fatty texture it is part of the texture of the of the pudding I think if you buy a, a cheap black pudding, and I don't want to knock any brand because, you know, to each their own, you get a lot of minced fat, and, and that's where you get that greasy, fatty texture. It makes me feel sick even talking about it. It's in there. You, you'll get beef suet, and they'll mince it in. And some puddings, we look at different products and the, the spec that they work to, they can be between 37 and 50% beef suet. Now, you won't see that. You look at ours and say, there's a lot of fat. You look at that and say, I can't see anything. But when you put that in a pan, that's when you'll see it because it'll be leaching out in the pan. And, and the thing with uh, berry black pudding and, and, and most, uh, most of the really good black puddings, and I think a lot of people don't realise this, you can actually eat it raw. It, it's that safe. Um, and, and, and actually the fat tastes fine as well. Of course, what I really like is, is to fry it really, really high. So you get a lovely crunchy outside. But it doesn't matter if it's not cooked on the inside because it's perfectly safe to eat all the way through. It is, and we're in Birmingham today, and actually this is the one place we come in the country where people do tend to eat it cold. It seems that that's how they've been brought up here, and we cook it, and they come along and go, what have you done to that? You've ruined it. Sturdy people, uh, Midlanders. <laughs> but it, it, it's perfectly safe. We cook it as part of the process. It's, um, it's made into a, a very soft mix when, when it's prepared, and the term pudding actually refers to just like a Christmas pudding or a sponge pudding, that it's steam-cooked. So what, what you get in the packet is, is cooked and ready to eat. The, the only exception we would say is if you're going into a butcher's counter and you're buying a traditional ring from the counter, if that's been next to a pork sausage or a pork chop, then we've got to treat it as a raw product because we don't know what cross-contamination could have happened after it left our factory. Absolutely. So I'm going to have a little taste. Um, what have I got in front of me? I've got the normal black pudding. I've got the chilli black pudding, which I have to say is a big hit in our office. And there's white pudding. So, so what is, you know, sometimes you do get white, that sounds weird, white black pudding. No, sometimes you get white pudding. What, what's the difference? We ask this everyone who comes on the stand at the shows. Um, obviously, they understand the concept of a black pudding. Um, the white pudding is a traditional accompaniment to a completely different product. It's technically a boiled sausage. Again, pudding refers to the way that we cook it. Ours is a very, very high proportion of pork. Um, we use pork shoulder, um, 46% in, in our white pudding. So it's essentially a boiled pork sausage with the same sorts of flavour profile as a black pudding would have. Well, I've just tasted that. That's lovely. Sorry, though. It's black pudding for me. Sorry about that, Peter. Um, and I do like your chilli black pudding, although I have to say, if it's breakfast for me, it's the normal berry black pudding. So um, thank you very much for joining me, Peter. I'm not even going to tell people where to get hold of it because it is literally in every supermarket in the country, isn't it? It is. We're at 5,000 supermarkets and any decent butcher, go in and ask and you'll find our products there. And I suggest you try that. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you. So 
I've just um, I've just wandered over to the Taste Cork stand, uh, which is obviously Cork in Ireland, uh, down the south of the country. And there's loads and loads of wonderful um, producers here uh, showcasing what the best of Ireland can produce. Um, and I'm joined by Kate. Um, Kate, you're are you actually based in Kinsale? Yeah, we're right in the town. And um, I've been to Kinsale a few years ago, and um, it, I was told, and I, I actually think this is true, that it actually is the gourmet capital of Ireland. Is that your opinion too? Absolutely, no contest. <laughs> no contest. I'll probably get loads of emails for that now. Um, so Kinsale's near Cork. Um, it's it's on the you know it's on the sea and and on the coast rather, and it's absolutely it's a really beautiful place, and it's packed with fish restaurants and great pubs. And great music as well, um, and and you've got a product here which is mead. Now I wouldn't associate that with Ireland. Well, it's been it's actually the oldest alcoholic drink in the world, um, and it's been in Ireland as long as honey has been in Ireland, which is about the sixth century. So so that's basically human beings, isn't it? What can we what can we turn into alcohol? Thinking about that, thousands of years ago, we're still doing it. That's right. I mean, we think that the first mead would have been somebody washing the honey out of a honeycomb and then leaving that honey water mix and the natural yeast would have fermented it and then going, well, how do we make that? That lucky person going back later and going, wow, this is, this is amazing. How do I recreate it? So, so, so mead is basically a honey-based alcohol drink. That's right. It's fermented from honey. So the traditional style mead will be just honey, water and a wine yeast. And then the wine yeast turns the sugars in the honey into alcohol. So in front of me here, we've, you, you, you're called the Kinsale Mead Company, and I've got Atlantic Dry Mead and a Wild Red Mead. Now, I've, um, I remember drinking mead a long time ago, and obviously because it's honey, it's got that beautiful golden colour. But your Wild Red Mead here is, is, is very, very dark. Um, are you mixing that with other things? Yeah, the wild red mead, we um, put fruit in with the honey and they ferment together. So we wax for black currants, which are lovely and tart. And then we've got sweetness coming from dark cherries. And underneath that, there's the Spanish honey. Well, I've just had a, I've just had a taste of that. It wasn't what I expected. It's, um, mm, it's got a lovely um, acid, fruit acidic, naturally fruit acidic taste. Um, and it's not heavy, is it? It's only uh, 12%. That's right, yeah. Um, and you're getting the natural tannins from the seeds and the skins. Is it part of my five a day? Just checking. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Wow, that's not quite expected. Um, very zesty. And definitely that sort of um, uh, undercurrent of cherries, I would say. How would you drink that? Just on its own? Yes, the, um, the wild red mead you drink at room temperature. And we tend to drink it in a tumbler so that you know you, it's not wine, not great wine you're, you're drinking, that you're drinking mead. <laughs> Yeah, don't drink too much of it. Now, this is the Atlantic Dry Mead, and again, it's 12%. Um, this, is, this has got a gold award, I think. That's right. We, um, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we won gold medal at the Mazer Cup, which is an international mead competition. It's like the Olympics of mead, basically. The Olympics of mead. I have never heard of that. Just explain <laughs> a little bit about the event. Yeah, well, it's mead makers from all over the world. Um, I think they had something like 600 entries. And we won for the uh, for the the off the off dry um, traditional meat style. I've just tasted that. Oh, I really like that, Kate. I really really like that because it's really honey. It is like honey in a nutshell, but it, it's not cloy and and bizarrely it's not sweet. As you said, it's it's off sweet. That's probably a good way to explain it. That is really gorgeous, and there is that hint of 
slightly blossomy, I think. That's right, yeah. We use this beautiful Spanish orange blossom honey. We bring it in raw in, in barrels. Um, and then you lift the lid of that and it's just wonderful flavours, yeah. And it makes a great need. Because I do like honey, but I don't actually, I don't actually um, eat it much because it, it, it almost feels too much for me. You know, it's too strong um, and too sweet. Um, this is lovely. It's not, it's not um, syrupy. It's quite light. It's got sort of the texture of wine, hasn't it? Um, it's just got the most wonderful honey flavour without being too sweet. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, it's 12% alcohol, so it'd be on the light end of the wine spectrum. So I would definitely recommend anybody who likes mead um, uh, to try the Kinsale Mead Company. Uh, particularly for me, the Atlantic Dry Mead is very good. Um, Kate, where can people find this? Can, can they get it online? Yeah, we have, um, we have an online shop up and running um, and we can ship direct to the UK there. And we just go to kinsalemeadco.com and we will put a link uh, from our website obviously and um, if anybody has never been to Kinsale really likes food we all know how wonderfully warm Irish people are they never stop talking either do they? (laughs) That's very true yes So if you want really good company and you want to stay for a couple of days in a great place um, I would recommend going to Kinsale just go to Cork Airport it's not far from there and and you'll get the most delicious food and drink Um, thanks for joining us Kate Thanks a million Um, I'm at the NEC in Birmingham and I want to talk tea. Um, There's loads and loads of of wonderful teas that we're seeing here and obviously health benefits and different flavours and fruits and herbs and all sorts of other things. But do you know what? I mean, me personally, I still drink five or six cups of what I would call builder's tea a day because... You know, I don't know, it's history and there's nothing like a cup of tea. And I'm joined by Malcolm Ferris-Lay. And Malcolm is an expert on tea. Now, a lot of people will actually claim that, but you genuinely are, aren't you, Malcolm? Because you've been involved in tea since 1968? That's correct. I started as a um, a trainee tea taster with Twinings on the 5th of February, 1968. And what is a trainee tea taster so in those days I mean is it the same now so what did you actually do you know for a, for your day's job you know what sort of activity well it started off I mean as, as young lads we had to make tea for the tasters I mean we would taste something in the region of eight to twelve hundred teas every day so all these teas were hand weighed um, and then you would you'd make the tea and then you'd knock on the on the, the tea taster's door and say, "Sir, your batch's ready," and you'd come out, and uh, he would start sort of tasting the tea, and you'd make notes for him, and so on and so forth. So these guys would be highly trained, wouldn't they? They'd be amazing in terms of their smell and their taste. Um, I, I, I presume then that this would be actual leaves. We're not talking about things stuffed in a tea bag. No, these these were leaves, and at that particular time in London, I mean, we were the centre of the tea trade. Uh, I mean, today we're drinking 165 million cups of tea a day. Uh, then we had auctions which went on for three days uh, a week. So you'd have all these samples from the various warehouses and these would all be loose teas and you'd be tasting them. Uh, each tea was weighed up with six grams of tea in a sort of a pot, a half pint pot, and you'd leave it for six minutes and then you'd turn it out and you'd taste it. So when you actually did the taste... So I'm sorry to interrupt you, Malcolm. So just this is a top tip here. Six ounces, six minutes, that's the key. Six grams. Sorry, oh, I meant that. Six grams and, and, and six minutes. If you want to get it right, that's, that's how you do it. 
No, that that's for us because I mean basically it's it's twice the strength as what you as a consumer would wish to drink. We wanted to get all the various nuances and and, and and tastes of that particular tea, so that's how you would do it. And it's still done like that throughout the world. Um, some companies now do it for four minutes because. A lot of people drink tea bags, and the actual brewing time of a tea bag is a lot less. People tend to dunk it in and squeeze it and pull it out again. So, whilst it might be a calorie cup of tea, it doesn't necessarily have the flavour. I see. So, so what you're saying is these guys then had double strength just just to really accentuate the flavours, and that's what they would base uh, their judgment on. The actual uh, leaves that they have of, of of the tea, and presumably that's black. Is it black tea? What we what we call black tea? Yeah, it is black tea. Um, I mean, you've got four predominant sort of uh, grades, if you like, what are called peco, uh, broken pecos, fannings and dust. A lot of people, we're, we're going to be talking about tea bags in a minute, a lot of people think about tea bags, they talk about sweepings. That is absolute nonsense. Really? Because I just thought, like my mum told me, this is ages ago, like decades ago, that basically that's what they used to sweep off the floor and then they just shove it in tea bags. That, that's just a myth, is it? It's a complete myth because, as I said, if you're drinking 165 million cups a day, that's a lot of sweepings. So the, the, the grade structure is you'd use what's known as either a peco fannins or a peco dust. Because it's a small leaf tea, it goes in the bag, you pour on the boiling water and it fuses very, very quickly. Whereas the larger leaf teas have probably got more character if you leave them long enough, but you do have to leave them considerably longer and you wouldn't put them in a tea bag. Having said that, we've now got the new... Uh, pyramid tea bags and I'm not talking about one of the major brands here but you've got the new pyramid tea bags whereby they're using a larger leaf tea and they just take that much longer to infuse. So if, if we talk like normal tea bags I mean what you're saying then is that, that most people when they wake up in the morning they're not going to sit around for six minutes or whatever it is waiting for the infusion because like me just get up in the morning it's just a habit I need a cup of tea a little bit of milk a tiny bit of sugar because I'm British um, and uh, I'm not going to hang around for six minutes I, I want that brew to come through probably in about a minute or so um, if we've got the bigger leaves though a, a normal tea bag is not the right um, um, structure for it why is the pyramid why are these new pyramid things so important when you've got bigger leaves well the, the pyramids were really developed by the Japanese uh, the, the, the Japanese like quality teas and as a consequence they they develop the if we want to be posh the tetrahedral bag um, it's a sort of a a, a muslin-y sort of material is what they first use so you could use a larger leaf tea and of course when they actually infuse it they leave it that much longer uh, there's a lot of room for the actual tea to to infuse because when you put the water on obviously the leaves swell and we've had we've had speciality um, tea people on the program, you know, quite a few times. They really sniff at me because I put milk in mine. I can't help it. When you've got these very very special expensive teas, they should be drunk black because that's when you get all the taste. So you should just ignore me. I'm with you. I disagree entirely. I th- I, I I love you. You're the only person that's ever said that to me, Malcolm. I I mean I train staff at some of the the London five star hotels. And I, I say to them, it's about how your guest, in that particular instance, how they enjoy it. When I first had my, my first trip to India to work, I was just amazed at how much sugar the Indians were putting in their tea. And that's the way they, they like to drink their tea. And if we like to drink our tea black with six spoonfuls of sugar or, or we put milk in it, who are we to dictate? 
and it really does I get quite twitchy over it I'm rather like you it's about your enjoyment not someone telling me this is how you have to consume it that's quite refreshing so I think what you're saying then is is if you find out what somebody's preferred way of drinking tea is then as a tea expert it's then your job to recommend the tea that really suits the way they drink it so if you do you know if you do like very sweet tea I'm sure there are certain sorts of teas that, that go very well with that if you do like milk in your tea there'll be other types of, 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 of tea you know leaves that, that will suit that so so working backwards from the consumer yeah, very much so. I mean, there's, uh, this particular show, there's quite a number of uh, rather exotic Chinese teas, for instance. Now, they're going to be their large leaf, and because they're large leaf, when you actually liquor them up, they're very, very thin in appearance. Now, if you put milk in them, they look really quite insipid. And as a consequence, one of the first things you do when you're tasting tea is it's visual. You, you've not even tasted it, but you've got an idea as to what it's going to taste like purely on the colour alone and also on the leaf appearance. I actually, there's a very specific colour I like my tea, and, and that's not to do with the colour, it's because I think, right, that's the right strength, and, I, and that is a sort of um, um, a signal, isn't it, for, well, for me, about, about how strong my tea is, which is probably a load of rubbish, but, but we are quite biased in that respect. Yeah, very much so, it, it, and, and so much stems from our parents, in all probability. You know, as a, as a child, you'd have a cup of tea, and this was how it was made. And, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the amount of fancy teas, and you talked about herbals, and, but they're not tea. They're I've, got, I've got no problems with those, you know, I'm, I'm, but I do think it's a different market. And as you say, a lot of them actually aren't even tea, they're fruit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tea is Camellia sinensis, end of story. It can be black, it can be green, white, or whatever. But these other ones are infusions. And one of the things is that we talk about, oh, well, I always drink peppermint tea. But actually, invariably, it's just a herbal infusion. So Yeah, I just I ask for peppermint tea, but actually it's just peppermint leaves in some water. We, we just call it tea, whereas actually that isn't the right word, is it, at all? No, not at all. And I, I think we've been doing it for so long, you can't sort of rewind the clock. Personally, I'd like to, but that's another story altogether. My, my dad used to make tea, so he, he's a sort of, um, you know, brought up in inner London and all that sort of thing. He used to make tea, it was so strong, it used to be like literally bright orange, and you could just throw a couple of carrots and onions in it, like a casserole. So I definitely don't have it quite as strong as that. Are you, are you a strong tea drinker? Or? Um, it just depends. I mean, of a morning, I like a, a, a good calorie cup of tea. Uh, in the afternoons, if I'm out somewhere, I might like something that's light, like a Darjeeling. I thoroughly enjoy Lapsang Shushong, which a lot of people say... Oh, I love that. And so many... I mean, it's very strong flavour profile. It's incredibly smoky, almost bacon-like, actually. Some people hate it. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason they hate it is because they're still making it in exactly the same format as you'd make your strong builder's tea, for instance. And the idea is that you make it light and it's just got that subtle smoky character rather than almost as if you're you're, you're re your drive you know it's got that heavy smoky character to it well um that's um all really interesting stuff now you've got here uh, um uh, it's a box of tea and it's called make minor builders well to be honest you're you're absolutely nailing your colors to the mast with that aren't you really so it says make minor builders and it's british cupper and there's a cup uh, at the bottom of the uh, the packet that's got a union jack on it um, and it's tested and approved by real builders. Did you just make that up, Malcolm? No, not at all. In actual fact, uh, if I tell you the history of this, this particular brand, Make Mine Builders, was developed by a marketing organisation. And it was the CEO of the company. When he came in one day, he said, 
you know, I want a cup of tea. And they said, what would you like? And he said, I'd like builder's tea. And he thought that would be a good strap line. So he actually developed the brand and it started to be quite successful. However, they didn't have the wherewithal to take it any further. So the, the, the late It's quite competitive, isn't it? And you're up against some seriously big players that have got great marketing budgets. So you've got to really go for it if you're going to do it. Absolutely. But this, this is very, very novel. And so therefore, this was built, uh, bought by a lady called Kerry Bamberger that owns the Authentic American uh, company here, uh, American food company. And uh, we, we now hope to develop this in the, the UK market. It's very, very successful in the States, would you believe? Really? So, so I know that you've, you've known Kerry for, for a very long time. And obviously she, she's, you know, um, a sort of trailblazes and, and, and brings American food here. But what you're saying is this Make Minor Builders is actually almost an American product that they love. And now you're bringing it over here. Have I got that right? No, it's, it's a British product. and uh, Kerry Sorry, A British product that you then started selling over there because it's really popular. And now you're thinking, right, we really need to sell it over here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I say, it, it started to prove quite popular here in the UK. Then it didn't. It, it sort of faltered, as it were. Then Kerry had the opportunity of purchasing the company, and that's exactly what she's done. So now we want to actually get this back into stores and so on and so forth. And one of the reasons we're here is to sort of launch it and see where we go from here. So I'm just going to read a little bit on the side of this box. Um, it looks very builder-like, so it's black and yellow, chevrons, you know, it's got a builder on the front. Um, it says here, Britain wasn't built on chamomile. Uh, fancy, frilly, flowery teas are all very well, but to get through a busy day, us Brits need a strong, satisfying brew. You're really, you're really just going for the brand, aren't you? <laughs> Hopefully that'll really annoy a few people. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, and... and it was made for builders, if you like. I mean, the, the, the Federation of Master Builders, actually, uh, it was sent to them and they've, they've supported it and so on and so forth. And I think that this would be ideal in, if I'm allowed to sort of advertise, the likes of Travis Perkins. I mean, you can go into a builder's yard and this will be on display there and the guys will buy this because they... I mean, any, anyone that has some house renovations done, the first thing you say to your builder, do you want a cup of tea? Yeah, so basically what we're saying is that B&Q, in amongst the big tools, we should be having, we should, they should be selling this, this tea because it's, it's the, the two just absolutely go together. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's just made for it. It really is. And then from there, that can be our platform and we'll take it a little bit further, hopefully. So, so how far have you got it distributed at the moment? Where, where are you? Uh, it's, it's not really. It, it is literally, we're starting afresh. Uh, we're going to be having some additional brands. I mean, this is in an 80 and, and a 40. We will do a tagged variety and we'll also do a catering pack of, say, 440 tea bags. So this is a, this is a sort of new relaunch, let's put it that way. Um, and um, if anybody wants to, to do a little sort of um, lobbying for wherever they are, their workplace, or if they are going to Travis Perkins... <laughs> Where can they go to find out more about it and, and, and try and make sure that we get this um, uh, Make Minor Builders uh, uh, more available? Well, they can certainly contact me. I mean, they can either do that by telephone or by uh, email. We're actually changing from Authentic American Food to a new brand that would encapsulate the products that we sell from America together with this. So at the moment, if anyone wants to contact me, they could do it through Consultancy at googlemail.com, which is my email address. Well, that, that'll all be on, um, on the uh, Food Talk website, which is foodtalk.co.uk. Um, am I allowed to take a couple of those tea bags home? Because I'm going to give it a little trial and then I'm going to email you, Malcolm, to just to let you know whether I think it is truly a good old builder's. 
uh, no you're not because I'm going to give you four boxes to take home with you as opposed to a couple we're not that mean here oh no I'm not going to take four boxes that's too generous but I, I really would like to try it we'll, we'll put it in our office because we've got 20 people there and we'll, we'll, we'll do a little um, we'll do a little survey to see what they think um, it's a pleasure to speak to you and all your uh, experience of t- uh, teaming it's, this is going to be a good one so I, w- I wish you um, really good luck with it thank you very much uh, Malcolm Ferrisley it's my pleasure thank you very much indeed I'm joined by Barnes, who knows about everything garlic, or so he claims. Um, and he's from the garlic farm uh, on the Isle of Wight. And when I was a child, I used to go on holiday nearly every year to the Isle of Wight. Love the Isle of Wight. Although, in my memory, it always seems to rain, but it doesn't now. No, we do get <laughs> some rain. It's at, the Isle of Wight is known to have the highest light intensity uh, of the UK. So we, d- we do get some rain. You need some rain. But we get an awful lot of sun, which is uh, important for everyone, but especially important for garlic. And um, it's a lovely, lovely place. Now, you've bought me a little tub here um, from the garlic farm on the Isle of Wight. And these are black garlic cloves. Now, I really don't think I've seen that before. Can you just explain to me what these are? Yeah, so black garlic is uh, it's a, it's a white garlic bulb that's been in a, a low-temperature oven for about four to six weeks. Uh, at a very specific humidity and it it goes completely black but pivotally the flavor changes radically uh, it becomes this caramelized gooey almost sort of vanilla and licorice sweet thing which is wildly different from the the sort of sulfur you know punch of of, of fresh garlic so I'm used to a garlic clove, which is white, and as you say, it's like quite hard, um, you know, and fresh. I have to tell you, I'm not a great fan of garlic. I think it's, I think, I think often it's it's quite heavy-handed and not subtle. Um, so I wasn't really looking forward to smelling this. This smells completely different. It doesn't smell like garlic. It, it has a, as you say, that sort of slightly syrupy balsamic vinegar smell to it. That's right. I mean, you know, people have a different relationship with garlic. Some some will enjoy that that very sort of pungent kick. Um, others like you perhaps will, will want to sort of soften garlic so introducing it earlier in the, in, in the cooking and, and going for that sort of caramel with, uh, with black garlic that, that work is done for you and, and more because the, the, the product itself is, is almost more like a, more, more like a sort of garlic je- jelly um, you know it's, it's, it's very soft it's very, it's very sweet and, and again uh, a, a totally different cousin to garlic rather than something that's immediately in the, in the same family. It's almost like adding a bit of a stock cube or something. Um, can I eat one of these? Or is that not recommended? You're, you're nodding, you better be right. Um, but it, it, you could just add a couple of these to a casserole, but at the end, not even at the beginning necessarily. That's right, that's right. I mean, you would use this product very differently to, to how you would use garlic. You've, you've got a great, great face on there as you... I've got a face for radio, that's why Barnes... <laughs> Wow. Now, I would never eat a clove of garlic because I just, I just, I, I can't do that. Um, I've just bitten into this. It's almost like licorice in a way. Not a licorice taste, but, but that sort of texture. Really sort of soft licorice. Mm, I'm, I'm only just getting the garlic at the end and not a lot. Like really subtle, really lovely. Yeah, so it's, it's a wonderful ingredient. And so this, this is an, I mean, as an ingredient on its own, it, it, it's, it's slowly gathering momentum. We've been, we've been working with partners to, to produce this for for many years now uh, J- Jamie Oliver's picked it up Otto Lenghi's picked it up which has brought it to um, to the food audience and, and momentum continues to grow uh, as an ingredient 
what we like to do with it uh, on the farm is, you know, we mix it in with ice cream, we, we bake with it, so it becomes something you can genuinely add to, to, the, to the, the sweet end of, uh, of cooking. But also as an ingredient in our latest product, this garlic mayonnaise with, with, with lemon and black garlic, you, you, you add a, a sort of velvety sweet note uh, which which is wonderful. We've we've got vodka. We've got beer. Is it okay if I taste this, or, or do you need it for a buyer? And you're not allowed to open it. Okay. So I've got garlic mayonnaise here. Oh, it looks very mustardy colour, doesn't it? It's the black. Mm. Wow. Again, that's really nice because I mean I use garlic in cooking because I think it brings out the f- flavours of other things, which I think is important to use in cooking. But I think you have to be really careful with it. I think I'm not too heavy-handed, personally. Um, and, and again, here, it's really subtle. I'm only getting the garlic at the end. You know, a not a horrible, unsophisticated hit, a really smooth hit. That's exactly it. I mean, that, that, that is entirely our, our focus with garlic. It doesn't need to be the hero. For us, it's great when it is, because, you know, on the, on the farm we love it. But in cooking generally... Uh, it, it, garlic is wonderful because, as you say, it, it grabs other flavours and, and lifts them up and, 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 and makes the best of what, what, you, what you put in a dish. Um, and that's why we find it so wonderful. And that's what's enabled us to have a range, an ambient range of over 60 lines that is essentially just sort of making the best of flavour. Garlic vodka, though. Now, there's a, there's a thing. Um, ooh, not sure about that. So, so you've got a bottle here of, of garlic vodka. That is really... To be honest, that's a bit insane. Uh, um, make good food great with garlic. So this is a vodka, and it's pitch black. It's absolutely black. That's right. It's it's entirely inky. Um, it's 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 a it's a it's 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 more like a potion. This it's a really extraordinary product. So uh, someone we've worked closely with, a chap called Rob, has done our markets and shows for us for for many many years. Uh, he's actually the second generation that's that's following through there from Graham and Maggie. Uh, and this was his idea, and we all said, oh, don't be ridiculous, that's, that's, that's just too weird. Can I smell it? Am I allowed? It just, it just looks so intriguing. It, it, it almost looks like a bottle of balsamic vinegar or something, that, that sort of colour. Um, I can't, would you have that as, as you would any vodka? Not at all. I mean, going for it straight is, uh, <laughs> is a bit exciting. But really using this in two ways, in a, in a Bloody Mary... Uh, we, we, we feel we've created the ultimate Bloody Mary on the farm. So you would mix this in with uh, another Isle of Wight produced vodka, um, Roxy vodka from the Isle of Wight distillery. And uh, there's a, a, a farm very close to us, the tomato stall, produce a, a tomato juice. Um, so you've got two ingredients that are very local to us. Uh, we add this, we add some fresh garlic, celery salt, we add our vampire slayer, which is a chilli sauce, and we create... Vampire slayer. Yeah, it's, it, that is properly deadly. And, um, yeah, we create this, this, this Bloody Mary using the, uh, the black garlic vodka. Uh, so that's one sublime use of it. And another is, is the espresso martini. Oh, yes, now you're talking. Am I allowed to have a little taste of this? Yeah. I've just poured it. Wow, it looks almost, it looks like squid ink. Yeah, it's, it's really quite, quite terrifying. And it does, as you, it, it, you've probably picked up, it's got a bit of a sulfur nose, which is um, curious given that the black garlic itself doesn't have that. Um, so it's got a slightly frightening uh, aroma. But when you, when you taste it in a moment, you'll see that there's, there's a velvety smoothness there. You're drinking a 37.5% proof vodka which should it's got be. hints of vanilla as yeah, well yeah 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 no there's a really strong vanilla uh in there and and that that should not give for six but something about the garlic kind of 
you know, it, it, it smoothed it through. I really like that. Yeah. I don't even particularly like garlic, but that's just, as you say, that's extraordinary, actually. Um, getting lingering vanilla as well. Mm. No, it's, a, it's, quite a, it's quite a complicated um, sort of profile. The, the journey it takes you on from the smell to then the taste and the, and, and the follow-through, we're really pleased with it. Can you imagine that in a Bloody Mary, though? That would be fantastic because because it would go with all those other things. It would bring all those things together. That's right. That's right. It's really, it's really exciting. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's one of those things. It shouldn't work. <laughs> no, it really, really shouldn't work. <laughs> uh, but it absolutely does, which is a great joy. So, you know, pushing garlic forward is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's happening. It's good. And I think it's quite nice as well when you've got a, a ingredient that's yours, you know, and you think, right, we'll... We are going to be known for black garlic, and now let's see what we can do with it, which to me is much more exciting um, and possibly easier and a bit more fun. Whereas you say, I'm an ice cream producer, right, let's do strawberry, let's do it. You know, seeing where you can go with this must be quite good fun. It is. I mean, all things garlic, you know, we very much see garlic as the heart of all flavour, you know, with third generation farmers at heart and, and, and hanging your brand, your business and, 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 and you know, your livelihoods on a, a single piece of produce is, is, is actually quite unusual in the speciality food realm because people tend to come at things from a, from a you know, specific angle, whereas we're, we're taking one thing and, and, and stretching it. Um, and if it doesn't work, we won't do it. But something like this black garlic vodka, like we said, it, it shouldn't work, but it, but it empirically does. So it's, it's great fun to just keep pushing the, uh, pushing the garlic envelope. And just fail quickly. Do it, and then if it doesn't work, just fail quickly. Um, no, it's really good fun, and, and I, think, I think absolutely right. What you're doing is doing this, adding value to your crop rather than trying to pile them high, sell them cheap into the supermarkets, just selling garlic, which, which is going to be really a, a horrendous price pressure, um, and just really adding value to what you do. No, that's exactly it. And we're doing that throughout the whole focus of the business. So, you know, my, my wife and I kind of split what we do. We've got, we've got two different teams, one focused on developing product to, to support speciality retail, uh, which I look after. And then we've got the, the farm shop, the cafe, the restaurant, the site there, which my, my wife does. Where, and that's where we entertain people in, it, in, in all things garlic, um, which is great fun as well. So if you want to know more about uh, black garlic, you need to go on thegarlicfarm.co.uk and we'll have um, lots of uh, links and stuff from our website. Um, and of course, if you're on the beautiful Isle of Wight this summer, which we're going to have a lovely summer, I hope, you need to make sure you go and, and visit these guys in New Church, um, and that's the Garlic Farm on the Isle of Wight. Thank you very much for joining me, Barnes. Brilliant, Sue. Thanks for that. That's great. Now, as you're all well aware now, um, this is the second day of the, um, of the Food and Drink Expo, although there's hundreds of other exhibitions here as well at the NEC in Birmingham. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is you're walking around and there's some incredible products, but sometimes people don't quite know how to show them off to their best ability. And, and actually, you know, why should you necessarily know that? It's, it, it's a skill. And um, I'm just joined by Martin Chudley, who, who works for uh, Dalebrook. Um, you help um, people like butchers and bakers and all sorts of other things, delis, actually, I suppose, train them, really, on how to um, show their stuff to its best ability, don't you? Yes, um, we are a food display company, so our job is to make your food look good. Um, we have spent the last 75 years working with retailers, and in fact, we started originally working with independent butchers, and it's great to be at a show like this today at the Food and Drink Expo, where we're meeting so many independent retailers and giving them advice of how to make their display look good. 
So is that, if we just take butchers for a minute and then we'll, we'll go on to other things. So um, butchers necessarily have got to have, you know, refrigerated unit of some sort. Um, not all of it is refrigerated, but, but mostly it will be. So say we've got a raw product and you've got sausages and, you know, lamb and all sorts of other things. Are there some just basic things that they need to get right to, to, to make their products look incredible? Yes, I mean, one of the, the biggest mistakes I see when I visit retailers, um, and especially some of the independent retailers, is that we build these three-tier, um, exactly the same shape displays. The same trays have been going out for the last 50 years. They've been very creative with their products. But actually, when you look at how they're displaying the product, it's standing from the customer side of the counter. It's not standing out. So the, the, what we have to create is differentiation in between the display so one of the ways we do that is we look at not having the same height throughout the whole display and the position we put the food that we want to sell in the display now we use risers um, to create different heights um, and we we put breaks within the display so that it's not one 20 foot look display we just go for small sections that are going to be appealing to the customer so I, I guess um, a really, really quick way of making sure you're doing this right is stop standing behind the counter and, you know, laying things out. Go around the other side and see what it looks like. I mean, that's just, that's just one very basic thing, isn't it? Yes. Well, my, my biggest thing when I go in and visit a, a, a retailer, being a big supermarket chain anywhere in the world, down to a local independent retailer, is I get the, the people working behind the counter to come and pretend that they're customers for the afternoon and look at what they're selling. And as soon as you bring the people that have put the product out that suits their particular mood, it's easy for them to reach and easy for them to get at, when they see it from the customer's eyes, they realise that all this wonderful food that they've created can have so much more impact in their displays. A bit of a light bulb moment for them. Absolutely. So um, another thing that you just said there is um, people, I mean, I'm a little bit overwhelmed here. Um, I've been here for a couple of days. There's so much to look at, you know, and your eyes being bombarded from all sorts of directions. If you've got a counter and everything looks very similar, you, know, you put things of the same colour or texture or shape together, um, your eyes just going to glaze over that. So what you're suggesting is, you know, m- mix things up a bit, you know, jazz things up a bit so that you've got different colours next to different things, you know, different sorts of shapes and sizes next to different things so that, that the person who's looking at it has, has got some visual interest. Yes, I mean, what I try to explain to my customers is... is is little and often, you know, two foot, three foot sections that are going to appeal to that product section. There's no point having 16 trays in a line all looking the same with the same shape product on it. Differentiation is so important. And um, repetition is good. Um, and now that could be within product on the tray, or it could be in height, or it could be in color. But um, the important thing to do is to try to, to, to make it look theatrical it, your food is on show so make show it off to the best its ability and obviously you know with the supermarkets you just wander down an aisle and there's nobody to talk to and you just shove things in your bag you know and everything's in a packet people are beginning to go back into independent retailers and certainly on the food talk show we've had quite a lot of research in the last few months that, that that's definitely happening 
and there is a move to go to your local butcher and your local baker and your local cheese shop if you're lucky enough to have one um, and people do want to talk about that food and have, have, have a conversation with it and, and it is about theatre isn't it and about a little bit of tiny entertainment in there and that's what's going to that's what's going to help you survive as an independent retailer Absolutely. Just remember that because you know how good your food is does not mean to say that the customer understands it. Now, I was in my local butcher store only a few weeks ago and I stood in the queue and I asked the butcher, I said, what do you recommend? And he was so pleased I'd asked that question because he knew what was special in his counter. And of course, to most customers, they wouldn't dare ask that question. They'd just be saying, I'm coming in to buy beef or I'm coming in to buy lamb and that's what I'm going to buy and that's what I'm going to... But you ask him and they will tell you how to cook it. They'll tell you everything about... I think more people are asking, actually. They are, and, and it's so important they do. But also, you can also put that message into the display. You can tell people how local your food is. You know, a very big thing about the... Um, I had a, a, a customer a few weeks ago that had put on um, a sausage roll in, in their display, and they said it was homemade. And I looked at it, and there were six sausage rolls in there, and I said, oh, where did you get your sausage rolls from? And he said, um, Martin, come, come and follow me through the back. And I went through the back area. And I got to this big production kitchen where they probably made about 600 sausage rolls. But when I was in the customer's viewpoint in the shop, it looked like they'd just taken a box like you would in Tesco's and just put them out and it'd come from a freezer or somewhere. There were people, there were chefs, there was a chef team. It's a butcher shop. There's chefs working in these places. And it just wasn't coming. So I said, how about if you change the wording on the ticket? Instead of saying homemade, but made in store and the light bulb moment happened again and the guy said yeah you've got it yeah i'm not telling my customers that we make it and it's so easy to overlook that as a, as a retailer you forget that you your customers may not know you um and i was up in the north of england um, just before christmas and i was in a store that at christmas eve they make over five thousand pork pies it was the big speciality and the, 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 their business had been established for, um, in 1870 or something. It had been a sort of fifth, sixth generation shop. of always been that butcher in that town. And we were standing there. I pulled the owner behind the counter into the customer's viewpoint. He said, well, the trouble is everybody knows who I am. Well, that's a massive assumption, isn't it, really? Well, Did you not think? Well, the best part of this was the next person that walked through the door said, hello. This is new. I've not been in this shop before. What do you do? It was it was like I paid the lady the money to say it, and that, and the point come across immediately. Again, it was saying, don't assume your customers know who you are or what you do. And I think it's I think it's about not just having labels. I, I think people do want to hear a story, and I think you know you only need to do you know one or two sentences. But if if you can label stuff up that just tells a story, people are interested in the provenance. Absolutely, and the most important thing you can tell people is how special your product is. And you don't have to have a textbook there. You just need an eye-catching one sentence or three words just explaining a little bit of where that product comes from, what's special about it. And when you get that link and you're looking through and browsing through the display as a customer and you see a little bit different, you know you can ask that expert standard because you are you know experts in these independent stores that can answer the question about where it comes from how long it takes to cook or any question about um gluten-free or whatever you want to know they will be able to give you that answer a supermarket can't give you that 
So stop being British. That's the that's the advice we've got here. Stop being British and hiding, you know, hiding your talents. You've got to shout a little bit about what you do and you've got to write stories. If anybody wants some help in terms of, of merchandising and, and, and they, you know, they, they want to come and be trained because it will make a massive difference to their to their business. Um, I know you're at Dalebrook. Um, do you do sort of training for people who are in retail? Yes, um, recently we opened a, a, a new showroom in, in central London um, and in that we are now offering workshops where people can come along, they can sign up to a, a food display um, workshop where we'll actually teach you the tricks of the trade um, and you can be a butcher, a baker, a deli, it, it really doesn't matter where you come from but we're going to go through the principles of merchandising, we're going to go through the do's and don'ts and some of the tricks of the trades which you know are obvious again to me but again to you to the independent retailers that I've met so far are not so obvious and it's just a great way of understanding how these little products that we make all fit together and have their place in your store to actually help increase sales and obviously make your products look good. And, and Martin, uh, you and your colleagues at Dalebrook, you know, the point of them is to, is, is to put that retailer in, in, you know, into the customer's um, standpoint and viewpoint so they really understand what it's like to be a customer and how they can maximise what they do uh, to the best benefit. So is there a website that people can go on to um, if they're interested in, in, in that and some of the other things you do? I think it's dalebrook.com. Have I got that right? That's right. If you go onto our website, dalebrook.com, um, you'll see links to the showroom. You'll see the full product range. And again, there'll be lots of photographs and, and storyboards for you to understand how some of our products work and, and feature. In fact, one of the recent ones, we've just done a, a case study where we've been working with some independent butchers. And um, there's a brochure that's downloadable from there, which will actually show you their counter and all the different tricks they put in it to increase their turnover. So it's a, a good reference point to see how the products work. Martin uh, Chudley from Dalbrook, thank you so much for joining me. And, and a bit, uh, it's a bit of a topic that, that people forget, but, it, but it's incredibly important. Um, so um, definitely go and have a look at Dalbrook. And thanks one, once again for joining me, Martin. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.